Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God in heaven, we are by nature foolish and ignorant and unable to understand the things of the Spirit of God unless they are revealed to us by that self-same Spirit. We pray that you would speak from heaven your word, that you would open our eyes to behold its wonder, that you would be our teacher and instructor, that you would be meek and lowly of heart, Lord Jesus, to instruct us in the paths of righteousness, that we may know our Heavenly Father, our Savior, and our indwelling Comforter. Indeed, that we may know the Lord as has been promised to us as the chiefest blessing of the new covenant. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our series on theology proper, we proceed to consider the names of God. God has revealed Himself in nature, creation, conscience, cognition. He's revealed Himself in His providence throughout history, especially the history of His church and His mighty dealings with His people. Uh, But supremely, God has revealed Himself in His Word, the only infallible rule for our faith and our practice. And as we seek to understand the doctrine of God, the knowledge of God, therefore we need to get into this book and consider the way in which God reveals Himself to His people in this book. And uh, right from the outset, In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, Exodus, and beyond, we see God revealing Himself through His name. Through His name. Uh, In our shorter catechism explanation for the third commandment, we're reminded that God's name is not limited to any one designation or title that's given to Him, but it includes His names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. So there's a lot that goes into God's name. In fact, God's name can be considered in terms of God's names, as the Catechism says, and His titles, and so on. So in order to understand who God is, we need to understand His name. Usually when someone introduces themselves to us, they introduce themselves by telling us their name. We see this throughout the scriptures, uh, even in instances where the angel of Jehovah came and appeared to, to his people, and they asked, tell us your name. What is your name? This is how God reveals his character. This is how he identifies himself, his characteristics, his achievements, his reputation, uh, the name of God, the names of God, the titles of God by which he describes himself. And we're going to begin our consideration of the names of God this afternoon by looking at the chief name that he reveals himself through, which is Jehovah. Uh, But we're going to begin that consideration by looking to the scriptures themselves first, our exegetical portion, examining a relevant passage of scripture. And when it comes to the names of God, in particular the name Jehovah, We have no further to look than the book of Exodus 
in two specific passages. First, the burning bush passage in Exodus chapter 3, where the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in this bush that is burning but not consumed. And we pick up in verse 13 of that chapter. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Uh, In Hebrew, Hayah, Asher, Hayah. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, and I've supplied uh, the name Jehovah for the Tetragrammaton, the uh, often translated with uh, L-O-R-D in all caps. I've just kind of, this is the newer New King James. I just substituted this. Uh, Jehovah, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So here you have the Lord calling Moses to lead the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And Moses says, how am I to identify the God that is bringing all this about and calling them out of Egypt? And God says, I am who I am. Uh, What's my name? I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. In other words, Jehovah, uh, which is really just a a merging of the various verbs to be in Hebrew, okay, as we'll see. It's the consonants of this name are Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh, four consonants. For that reason, it's called the four-letter name, the Tetragrammaton. And historically in English, it's been translated Jehovah, and we're going to look into that as well. But he, Jehovah takes I am that I am and turns it into a name by taking that verb to be and turning it into a name, Jehovah. Now, let's go to Exodus 33 and 34, where we see again God revealing himself through his name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of Jehovah before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. So God can't reveal direct access to his essence. Uh, But he graciously reveals something of himself, not his face, but uh, as it says later, his back parts, something of, of his revealed glory to Moses. Moses wants to see his glory. God says, I'll show it to you. And, he, and God calls it all my goodness. Picking up verse 5 of Exodus 34. Now Jehovah descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Jehovah. And Jehovah passed before him and proclaimed, Jehovah, Jehovah God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, 
keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So Moses understands the greatness of this revelation of God, graciously revealing himself through his name, Jehovah, Jehovah God, and then flowing out of that all these various descriptions and attributes and works of God that he reveals to Moses. And Moses properly responds by hitting the dirt and worshiping God, which is the proper response. That's the whole point of all this, that we're studying the doctrine of God so that we can fear God and reverently bow down before his holiness. Now, Notice here in these verses that God reveals himself through his name or names. You see at least two of the three primary names that we use for God in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. First, Jehovah, yud heh vav heh Lord, the Tetragrammaton, Jehovah. You see that as, the, as receiving most of the emphasis here in these verses of God revealing himself. He calls this his name forever, his memorial to all generations. Secondly, Elohim, or God, which is the word El in Hebrew, but it's in the plural, Elohim. And we'll consider the name Elohim or the title Elohim separately but this refers to God as the mighty one. And we use it in general to refer to God as the divine being. And so you see it throughout this passage, uh, Moses interacting with God. And you can see in one sense, it's a more general thing. He says, he, he speaks to God, but he wants to know God's name. So Jehovah reveals something deeper, but God is a name and title that is befitting of him as well. Thirdly, we, we don't see in this passage let's say the third most significant name of God in the scriptures. Uh, and we're kind of dealing with the foundational revelation of God here. So we're thinking of the Old Testament especially, but that third most significant name is Adonai, which means Lord or Master. And that's a word that's applied more broadly even to human lords and human masters, but it is applied to God as the supreme Lord and Master. And all three of these titles find their way into the Greek New Testament in various ways. Uh, Jehovah is translated uh, as uh, kurios, meaning Lord. And that's why we see Lord in our Old Testament translation. Uh, Adonai is also translated kurios or Lord. And Elohim is translated God, as it is in our Old Testament as well. So these are the three most significant names. Two of them are mentioned in our passage. And of course, there are numerous other names that are added to these fundamental names in order to communicate something about God. For instance, Jehovah Sidkinu is Jehovah our righteousness. So it takes the name Jehovah and, and attaches it to the Hebrew word for righteousness and this kind of thing is very common. But these are the building blocks. These are the fundamental names, Jehovah, Elohim, Adonai. In addition, we see that God's special name is Jehovah. 
this is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. When Moses asks for God's name, he says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. And then he gives him Jehovah, a name that, as I said, is based upon the Hebrew statement, I am that I am. Hayach Asher Hayach. It, it takes that name, Yehovah. And it, it, it incorporates that into the name to communicate that truth that God says is so important that he calls it his memorial to all generations. And notice when he reveals his glory, his goodness, uh, his name to Moses in Exodus 34, that it begins Jehovah, Jehovah God. So everything else that's mentioned there is meant to be flowing out of Jehovah. I am that I am. This is God's special name. It appears over 6,800 times in the Hebrew Bible, more than all of the other divine names combined. This is a very significant name. Now, God's special name, Jehovah, describes the essence of His being. Now, when we use that language, essence of God's being, let me be clear, we're not attempting to say, well, certain parts of God are essential and other parts are peripheral or not essential. We're not attempting to say that because notice when God reveals His name, He reveals all His goodness. God is a unified, comprehensive whole with no parts, as our confession teaches, rightly. God is one and His name is one, as one of the prophets says. God's character is one. Uh, He is a unified whole. He reveals Himself in these piecemeal attributes to us in the Scriptures, which are accurate, and yet these are revelations to finite creatures so that we can grapple with various aspects, various facets of the diamond. But in essence, God is one. So we're not seeking to deny that. But as I said, as creatures, it's inevitable that we're going to make distinctions within God's nature for the purpose of understanding them and distinguishing them, not for the purpose of saying that inside of God's being there are these distinctions, but rather these are accurate distinctions for creatures to understand. And uh, one of the greatest voices of the classical view of God that acknowledges His oneness, His unity of being, uh, as we say, His simplicity, is Richard Muller who's famous for his four volumes, Post-Reformation Reform Dogmatics. Muller, a champion of the simplicity of God, makes the distinction that I'm using here. Okay, so this is not in any way disparaging the classical biblical confessional view of the simplicity of God. Um, But certain aspects of God's character are often described as the essence of His being. And by that, we're referring to His... Uh, the, the attributes of his existence, his, uh, again, using a big word, but his ontology, the ontological attributes of God, the, we could say, the incommunicable attributes of God, those aspects of God that are in no way reflected in the image of God in man or in the angels as reasonable creatures. These are things that we can only know by negation. So if you think of the shorter catechism, God is a spirit, and then after that, what does it say? 
infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Okay? So these are the incommunicable attributes of God that we know only by negation. Infinite means He's not finite. He has no boundaries. He's limitless. What that means positively, we have no idea. But we know that we know what boundaries are. We know that he exceeds them all. And, um, but we can't comprehend or wrap our minds fully around and encompass that. We know it by negation. It's an incommunicable attribute of God's essence, of his existence. He's without bounds in his existence. Infinite, eternal. God is outside of time. We know what time is. We know what the boundaries of time are. We don't know what it would be like to be outside of time except to say God is that. He's, he's, he's outside of time. He's atemporal. He's eternal. And unchangeable or immutable. We know what change is. We can't really comprehend an unchangeable existence. But again, these are aspects of God's essence, His existence. Incommunicable. Uh, God is a spirit Uh, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Then after that, uh, you you see a lot of things that we can relate to in that shorter catechism question four. Things that we would consider to be communicable attributes. First of all, being, in a sense, right? We, We have a being. God exists, we exist. There's something of a reflection of God in that. But, uh, God, um, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. These are all things that are reflected in his creatures, especially in men and angels. These are things that uh, reflect his moral perfections, we could say. That's one way people use to describe it. Uh, Or the operations of his essence, or the way in which he reveals himself. But God's special name, Jehovah, doesn't focus so much on God's wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, but focuses more on God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. Or as the larger catechism says, in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. That's what's represented by Jehovah. And so we can look at uh, at least four elements. One, transcendent holiness. When God declares his name Jehovah, he is declaring his transcendent holiness, not in the sense of moral purity, that's one of the communicable attributes, but we're speaking here of his ontological or essential holiness, the infinite distance between the creator and the creature. So his transcendent holiness, his incomparable otherness, who is like Jehovah? glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. I think we sang a psalm this morning or somewhere I remember reading or singing, um, you alone are Jehovah. I think it was in one of the psalms. You alone are Jehovah. It, It shows his transcendent holiness and otherness. And you see this when he speaks from the burning bush to Moses Moses says, what's your name? And he says, my name. I am that I am. There's a sense in which he's, he's not answering the question. There's a sense in which he's saying, you can't put a label on me in the way that you can classify the various creatures that I've made in the world. Uh, I simply am who and what I am. 
I am existence. I am the perfection of being. I'm not a species or subset of any shared category of being. What's my name? You're asking, in one sense, the wrong question. I am who I am. I am that I am. I can't receive a name in the same sense. Of course, then he gives that as his name. But it's, it's in a sense, protesting against attributing to God a name in the same way that we might receive a name. God uh, names everything else, right? Naming is an attribute of dominion, ownership. Uh, God names Adam. Adam names Eve. Adam and Eve, or Adam names the animals. You know, the parents name their children. You have this idea uh, of naming, and and God does not receive a name. He just is. Transcendent holiness. Secondly, his infinite self-existence and self-sufficiency. God is the necessary being. I think it's Shed who says that this name Jehovah in itself lends credence to the ontological argument for God's existence, that God is simply the necessary being. To conceptualize him is to acknowledge his existence, according to Shed. Uh, God is saying, I am that I am. In other words, I am self-existent. I exist because I exist. I'm not, I'm not caused. I wasn't brought into being. I exist because I exist. I am that I am. Thirdly, it speaks of God's eternity, that He is outside of time. Outside of time. And uh, the, the Hebrew words that uh, scholars believe are associated with the name Jehovah are uh, the, the verb to be in reference to the present, hayah, and then with reference to the past, hoveh, and with reference to the future, yichyach, okay? Jehovah, that's what uh, you, you'll see uh, Ainsworth, the Puritan scholar on the Old Testament, makes this case. Uh, many scholars today, Reformed scholars uh, throughout Reformed history have made this case as well, that Jehovah is in reference to I am that I am, and that seems to be... Um, that seems to be the case in terms of the way the Scripture interprets it. Uh, among the Jews, even, they view God as the one who is and who was and who is to come, flowing out of this. And you see that very same formula is repeated in the New Testament. Revelation 1, verse 4. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Uh, you can see it in verse 8 as well. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And you'll find that again in Revelation chapter 11, verse 17, chapter 16, verse 5, uh, also Revelation 4, verse 8. So this is the, the understanding that the Bible gives us of the name Jehovah, the I Am, the one who is, who was, who is to come. It's built into the very name itself. Fourthly, it reveals his immutability, that he is unchangeable. I am that I am, not I was. And this is where I am, in some sense, builds the groundwork, right, for who is and who was and who is to come. 
Because whatever, whatever is to come, it's not that He's going to change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am that I am. It's not I was or I'm going to be something different, process theology, God is evolving. No, God eternally, forever is the same. This is His everlasting memorial because this is His everlasting character. I, Jehovah, change not, therefore, Jacob, you are not consumed. Malachi 3.6 Now, the name Jehovah serves to magnify the qualities of His being uh, that we would associate with the communicable attributes. Right? Not the essence of His being, as Muller and others would understand it, as a helpful distinction for creatures, but the qualities of His being. Okay, He's eternally and infinitely and unchangeably what? Uh, What kind of God is He? What are the qualities of His being? Uh, Again, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, power, uh, the communicable attributes. 2 Peter 1.4 speaks of believers as partakers of the divine nature. That does not mean that we become infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. It simply means that in our being, by God's grace, we're conformed to the image of God in Wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The moral perfections of God. Uh, The attributes that are often associated with His life, His intellect, and His will. Again, referring that back to Muller. And isn't it interesting that when Moses asked for God's name, or rather for His glory, God says, I'll show you all my goodness. So, Jehovah doesn't stand in and of itself by itself to say, well, God is transcendently other and just leaves it that way. That's not at all the case. God says, I'm going to reveal my glory, my transcendence, my name Jehovah in a way that highlights all my goodness. In other words, my relation to my creatures and particularly to my people. And so in this name we find an emphasis in the way that it's used in the Bible, not simply on His transcendent glory, but on the glory of His goodness. It amplifies the essence of His being as it flows into the qualities of His being. And that's what you see. Jehovah, Jehovah God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. It goes on to speak of His forgiveness of sin, of His punishing of sin all of these ways in which uh, His infinite, eternal, and unchangeable essence is brought to bear in His moral perfections, His his qualities of being uh, manifested in history. And so we look to this name Jehovah when we're reading the Scriptures and when we see that L-O-R-D in all caps, or in some cases, New Testament quotations that, you know, hearken back to that name, when we see that, we're to understand that whatever's spoken of in that passage, we're to take whatever God is saying about His dealings with us, His love for us, His forgiveness of us, His hatred of sin, His wrath, His mercy, and we're to amplify and magnify that by the transcendent essence of His being. His wrath is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. His mercy is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. That's what this name conveys. I am that I am. Now, secondly, we're going to combine our 
dogmatic or doctrinal and our polemical treatment of this subject together uh, in a way similar to what Francis Turretin does in his uh, Institutes of Elenctic Theology. Uh, we're not going to deal with these separately, but we're going to deal with these questions of dogmatics or biblical doctrine in terms of the polemical or controversial questions that exist. And um, so our first dogmatic polemical question is this, as we're seeking to understand the doctrine uh, of, of this idea of the name Jehovah as it's taught in Scripture, we ask first, are God's names essential to His being or simply a gracious and accurate means of self-revelation to His creatures? Are God's names essential to His being or simply a gracious and accurate means of self-revelation to His creatures? And we affirm the latter. God's names, while they convey His essence, are not essential to God Himself. His names are communicated in human language. What they signify is God's essence, but the names themselves are not God's essence, but they're a gracious and accurate means of self-revelation to His creatures. And you can see this in our text in Exodus 33, the middle portion there of what you see on the first half of your uh, outline, that this is a name that God is graciously revealing. He, he'll reveal it in grace to those to whom He'll be gracious. He'll have compassion on those to whom He'll have compassion. This is a free and gracious revelation. God doesn't have to do this, but He reveals it freely and graciously. He doesn't show Moses His face. And I think we can say that although... It's true that in Christ, we do see God's face in Christ and there's something of that there. There's also a sense in which Moses is limited as a creature. He can't see God's face in the sense of peering in to, directly into God's essence. And in a sense, we never will. There's a sense in which this is, a, by definition, a limitation on every creature, even in heaven, that we won't see his face in the same way that the Father and the Son see each other in the triune Godhead. Um, there's another sense in which we'll see His face in a more glorious way than Moses saw the back parts. But the point here is, it's a gracious self-revelation and uh, we should be thankful for that. But, but this, this name is, is not God's essence in itself. Secondly, is the name Jehovah applied to God alone? Is the name Jehovah applied to God alone? And that we affirm. You can see in Psalm 83, verse 18, one of the few instances where our psalm book translates the name Jehovah in the red psalter, Yahweh in the blue, but it's not content with Lord, L-O-R-D in caps, because it says that they may know that you whose name alone is Jehovah are the most high over all the earth. Whose name alone is Jehovah. Unlike chapter uh, or Psalm 82, the previous Psalm, where the name Elohim, the title Elohim is applied to civil magistrates. Jesus quotes this 
particular passage in John chapter 10. But in Psalm 82, the term God is applied to civil magistrates. Not so the name Jehovah. It is unique to God alone, and it's never applied to anyone other than Jehovah himself in the scriptures. Uh, There's another proof text. Like I said, it was somewhere in our service this morning. I remember seeing it, but we'll be satisfied with Psalm 8318. Thirdly, we ask, is the name Jehovah applied to all three persons of the Trinity? And we affirm. Psalm 2 verse 1 speaks of Jehovah and his anointed, the anointed being Christ, the Messiah, Jehovah being God the Father. Psalm 110 verse 1, Jehovah said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. That's the Father speaking to the Son. And so Jehovah there is in fact, the Father. Uh, Jesus famously applies not just the name Jehovah to himself, but the underlying foundation of that name, John 5, verse 58, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So he's claiming to be the angel of Jehovah in the bush. And he's claiming that divine name, even the more fundamental substance there of I am that I am. And of course, numerous New Testament quotations of Old Testament passages apply the the name Lord or Jehovah, which in the Old signifies Jehovah, they apply it to Christ, such as Romans 10 verse 13, Whoever calls upon the name of Jehovah, that's from Joel chapter 2, I think verse 32. Peter quotes that on the day of Pentecost in reference to calling upon the name of Christ. And Romans chapter 10, verse 13, and the surrounding passage does the same thing. To call on the name of Jehovah is to call upon the name of Christ. Isaiah 6, verse 5, Isaiah says, He saw the glory of Jehovah. Mine eyes have seen the King, Jehovah of hosts. And then John 12, 41 says that Isaiah, when he saw the king, Jehovah, he saw the glory of Christ. With reference to the Holy Spirit, it's not as quite as easy to draw the connection, but as our standards quote these, these, uh, this complex of texts, Isaiah 6, 5, as we said, Isaiah sees Jehovah, and it's Jehovah that's interacting, interacting with him throughout that interchange. And then it's in that connection that Jehovah says to Isaiah, who will go for us? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he goes on to call Isaiah to the ministry and say that his uh, audience would not be very receptive. Now, Paul in Acts 28 verse 25 quotes that entire section of Isaiah and says the Holy Spirit said that to Isaiah. So it applies what Jehovah said, not just to the Son, John 12, 41, but to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jehovah is three persons. Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and when the Bible speaks of him as the Spirit of Jehovah, Genesis 1, or the Spirit of the Lord in the New Testament, uh, it's meant to be understood in the same way where if we would say Jesus is the Son of God, and then we would say he's God the Son, When we say the Spirit of Jehovah, what we're meant to understand is Jehovah, the Holy Spirit. 
And that seems to be evident in 2 Corinthians 3.17, which says that the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So it seems to identify the idea of being the Spirit of the Lord with the idea of being the Lord who is the Spirit. In the same way, again, as the Son of God is God the Son. And, and all of that, that entire passage is drawing on Old Testament imagery of God writing His law in people's hearts. So Jehovah is at the center of that use of Lord there. So we apply it to all three persons of the Trinity. Now, was the name Jehovah unknown prior to the burning bush? We deny. Exodus 6 verse 2 seems to imply that perhaps uh, we should affirm this statement. Perhaps the name of Jehovah was unknown prior to the burning bush. Exodus 6 verse 2. I am Jehovah. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. That is El Shaddai. But by my name Jehovah, I was not known to them. But if you go back to the book of Genesis, it is clear that God's people perhaps did not understand the full meaning of Jehovah because he had not brought forth that work of deliverance of the old covenant people of God that points ahead to Christ. He had not saved them from bondage in Egypt yet. He had not manifested the content and the significance of that name to that same extent. However, uh, they did use this name. Uh, You'll see throughout the early chapters of Genesis, it frequently refers to the Lord, the Lord God, Jehovah God. But then in uh, chapter chapter 2, verse 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Jehovah God made the heavens and the earth. Uh, Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What did Eve say when she conceived and bore Cain? I have acquired acquired a man from Jehovah. So did she not say that? No, she said that. She said Jehovah. That's the historical record. That's not just added later. This is liberal scholars think, oh, people came in later and added a bunch of stuff. But she said that. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 26. As for Seth, to him also... A son was born and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of Jehovah. So people are worshiping, calling on the name of Jehovah. Uh, Genesis chapter 22, verse 14. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of Jehovah it shall be provided. So uh, Jehovah Jireh. In other words, that was an actual name that Abraham used prior to the burning bush. So he knew the name, and we could go to numerous other passages. I'm not going to do that. But throughout the book of Genesis, the patriarchs used this name. um, But they didn't see the fullness of it. They didn't see the full revelation and manifestation of it. That's the idea of Exodus 6, 2, and 3. In addition, did the serpent omit the name Jehovah on purpose? And we affirm this. If you go back to the early chapters of Genesis, all throughout the account of God establishing Adam and Eve in the garden, it says the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. God establishes His covenant relationship with Adam and Eve as their Creator, as their Lord, as Jehovah. 
Jehovah God, Jehovah God. Read through the whole chapter, chapter 2. And then, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which Jehovah God had made. And he, the serpent, said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Satan deletes this name. And again, we're not superstitious about syllables here. Satan deletes it because it communicates something about God. That the transcendence, the eternity, the infinitude, the unchangeability of God's character, His greatness, His great love, His, all His goodness, you could say, if we think of how God revealed that name Jehovah to Moses. She forgets all His goodness. Uh, Satan loves to play Thomas Jefferson with the Bible and to cut things out. And when he tempted Jesus, he left out a portion of Psalm 91, in all your ways. So the angels will guard you, lest you strike your foot upon a stone. They'll, they'll keep you. But it says, in all your ways. In other words, in all the ways that God has laid out for you to fulfill. Not just willy-nilly jumping off the roof of the temple or something like that. Satan loves to remove words and phrases from the Scriptures and from God's revelation and from God's name. And so here, strategically, yes, uh, this is not speculative, uh, the, the same verse describes him as Jehovah God and describes this, the devil as calling him God, merely God, Elohim. And all throughout the discourse, he's described as God as man falls into sin. But then verse 8, and they heard the sound of Jehovah God. See, Satan dumbs down our view of God and tempts us into sin. But the fact is, we're not going to stand before the dumbed down version of God that Satan dupes us into believing in. We're going to stand before Jehovah God, the great I Am, and be called out on the carpet to answer to Him. And uh, that's, that's very important to see that dynamic. And as we fight temptation, remember God's name. Uh, the name of God is a mighty tower, a fortress. The righteous run into it and they're safe. Uh, take refuge from Satan in the name, in the character, in the glorious essence and attributes of God Himself. Now, we're going to... Uh, we're going to conclude here because I think we found some helpful application there and we're going to pick this up next time and uh, for that reason uh, I apologize to my messenger who went to get my iPad for the remainder of this lecture. We won't need it. We're going to stop here but just as a preview for next time we're going to consider should the name Jehovah be abandoned due to the Germanic J. We're going to look then at should the name of Jehovah be abandoned in favor of Yahweh due to the alleged discrepancies in the Masoretic vowel points? Is the Greek rendering of Jehovah as kurios or Lord in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, and then in the New Testament, illegitimate or authentic? Does the New Testament Greek rendering of Jehovah as kurios or Lord necessitate the removal of Jehovah from the English Old Testament translations and Psalters that we have? And 
in an increasingly syncretistic and pluralistic age, would an English rendering of Jehovah more effectively convey the biblical doctrine of God than the more generic title Lord? We're going to examine each of those questions and then we're going to have some practical application. But these are important questions and so let me just whet your appetite by saying something about uh, the one that's listed under letter F. Should the name of Jehovah be abandoned due to the Germanic J? Now, I'm German, and so you you could just accuse me. There's a conflict of interest here. Um, Although the people that have championed the cause of getting rid of Jehovah in favor of Yahweh, uh, they really stem from Gesenius, who was also a German scholar. So just to balance the ledger there. But uh, Jehovah, we all know that in Hebrew there's no just sound. It's Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh. It's, if, if it's Jehovah, it would technically be Yehovah. And so people say, well, let's just get rid of Jehovah. This is an embarrassment. Don't you know that uh, the Jews in Jerusalem, like Jeremiah and Jesus, uh, they, they didn't use this name Jehovah. There's no J. To which we say, the Jews in Jerusalem like Jesus and Jeremiah. I have no idea. Who are you talking about? You mean the Yehudites in Jerusalem, uh, Yeshua, Jeremiah? I mean, the, the, the bottom line is this is a ridiculous objection. We have a historic translation in the English language, which when it was placed in our older English version, such as the King James and in the Geneva Bible, uh, J could adopt the I sound or the Y sound. So people very likely in 1611, many of them were saying Yehovah because the I and the J were interchangeable. So it's not as though these translators were, you know, total Neanderthals. They understood this. They were using that language. But historically, over the years, it has taken on a J sound. But again, so has the term Jews, Jerusalem, Jesus, Jeremiah, Jehozadak, Jehoshaphat. I mean, at a certain point, Nobody is proposing that we be consistent with any of those other names, so why not just be content across the board just to use the J where it appears and and retain that historical continuity? All right, well, we'll deal with some more of the substantive issues next time. Does anyone have any questions before we pray? All right, let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, You are Jehovah Shammah, the Lord who is here with us even now. We pray that you would write your word upon our hearts, even this name, which is your memorial unto all generations, that you are I am that I am, the one who is and who was and who is to come, and that you are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in your love for us, your treasured possession. Teach us your ways and Help us to take refuge in the name of Jehovah our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.